Ignite your curiosity with Austin next. We're watching Austin transform from a thriving ecosystem into a global superstar. With our host, Jason Scharf, we aspire to better comprehend the true nature of innovation. Together, we will uncover what makes a successful ecosystem and navigate the technologies shaping our future. Now let's dive into what's next. Richard Florida is the world's leading urbanist and international best-selling author of Rise of the Creative Class. We were going back and forth on a number of topics on Twitter, and I thought it'd be fun to expand that conversation on the podcast. He's a pioneering researcher and professor at the University of Toronto. He's co-founder of The Atlantics and now Bloomberg City Lab, the leading publication devoted to cities and urbanism. He's founder of the Creative Class Group, advising companies such as BMW, Audi, Starwood Hotels, Facebook, Instagram, Converse, Microsoft, and several others. Florida serves as a board member with many of the leading real estate, urban innovation, and venture capital firms across the globe. Richard, welcome to the Austin Next Podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. I'm a social media Twitter follower and a fan. I appreciate that. So I want to start off on kind of the big theories that you're known for, the creative class. Can you describe the concept and how it relates to innovation and innovation ecosystems? Yeah, but, but, but before I do it, I have to tell you and listeners the truth, the real backstory. The real backstory is that I was a professor at Carnegie Mellon, and I had been at Carnegie Mellon and, and been part of this renaissance of Pittsburgh and been arguing in Pittsburgh about how Pittsburgh should really embrace the research at Carnegie Mellon and the research coming out of Carnegie Mellon and the companies that were coming out of Carnegie Mellon, the talent that was coming out of Carnegie Mellon to create an innovation ecosystem. I didn't come up with this term in the creative class yet, and I had been studying this. And I was walking across campus one day and I saw these kids playing ultimate Frisbee, pretty cool looking hipster kids. And I asked them what they were going to do after graduation. And they said, we're going to move to Austin. The whole book, folks, is really my meditation on why Austin, why not Pittsburgh? Why Austin, why now? now and, and I had gotten to know Austin. I had been to Austin. Recall listeners, the most important person or one of the most important people in Austin's rise as an innovation ecosystem was a fellow named George Kosmetsky. There's an important lesson in this. George was denied tenure at Carnegie Mellon and then went off and founded a very successful company on the West Coast called Teledyne and later was recruited to join the University of Texas at Austin faculty as the dean of the business school where he established IC Squared. But oh, I knew George. I had visited George. I had been in Austin. I had benchmarked Austin back in the 80s. So I knew it was happening. And, and the reason these young people wanted to go to Austin was because it was fun. And it's interesting. It, they liked Austin more than San Francisco or the Bay Area because it was more accessible. It was kind of like a cool, at that time, we're talking about 20 some years ago, a cool college town with a great music scene and good bars to go to and lots of stuff to do outside and, you know, go, go to Barton Springs and do all this fun stuff that's Austin, ride bikes. And so the point is the whole darn theory of the creative class comes out of my trying to understand why not Pittsburgh, why Austin? All right, I'm going to pull that thread right there. Because you said they wanted to move to Austin because it was fun. There was a recent interview that Bill Gurley did on Bloomberg, 
that, and he just recently moved back to Austin from the Bay Area. And he said one of the problems that Austin and Miami face compared to Silicon Valley is that we are too fun. We're not going to be attracting the most determined founders. So it's an interesting having that flip side is we're more fun than Pittsburgh given that, but we're too much fun compared to the Bay Area. What is your thought on that? So there's a couple things I would say. First of all, Austinites know this, so I'm speaking to the converted. The overnight success story, which is Austin's innovation ecosystem or high-tech startup complex, it's like four decades in the making. It starts with Kosmetsky or even before Kosmetsky, and it's why Kosmetsky was recruited. IC squared becomes a really important pivot point in this, but but very early on, Austin's political leaders, George, Pike Powers, and many others, begin to make these missions. I forget if it was the Chamber of Commerce or an informal group, but they begin to take these annual missions to the Bay Area and to Silicon Valley to recruit people and, and companies. So the most important thing is that to understand is that Austin is not an independent tech hub. It is a satellite of the San Francisco Bay Area. Yes, it's great. It's wonderful. And Miami is not a tech hub. This is a bunch of bullshit. You know, what Miami is, there's a little tech complex and some of the PayPal guys, Peter Thiel and uh, his his buddy, whose name I'm blanking on now. Keith Rubino moved down there. Yeah, he, uh, Raboy, he, you know, Raboy, he's sorry, always yes. kind, of a, kind of a jerk. Even, even Paul Graham, you know, Paul Graham called him out on Twitter and said, why are you always such a jerk, Keith? You know, but I think, you know, it, it, what Miami is, is really kind of an outpost of New York City and related financial and real estate industries. Um, and, you know, I'm actually working on a whole essay on this with folks at BCG. I call it the rise of the meta city, a new kind of city, which is not just a physical agglomeration. It has these kind of digital links. And, you know, Austin is linked to San Francisco. Miami is linked to New York and Nashville. Another one of these rise of the rest cities is, is really linked to Los Angeles. So, yeah, but I, I think, look, Bill is really smart much smarter and more successful than me. But I don't think the problem is Austin is not that much, is too much fun. I think the problem is Miami is too much fun. You know, that's a whole different thing. Share, you asked about the creative class. The creative class is just my way of, of looking at people who have a high degree of skill. Many people look at people with a bachelor's degree and more. That's sort of the conventional measure of skill and human capital. What I kind of figured out when I was at Carnegie Mellon is you could use occupational statistics what people do for work. And you could look at people who work in technology, innovation, high-level business and management, healthcare, uh, education, research, and the arts. And you can cluster the skills that, that draw on underlying innovativeness or creativity or, or mental capabilities, and you could develop them into a grouping. That's what I did. And, but you know, Miami has a share of this, which is like half of Austin or the Bay Area. So Austin or the Bay Area now probably have between 45 and 50% of their workforce in this creative class. Uh, Nashville has been growing very rapidly. Miami is like 25%. It's like Las Vegas. So they're completely different animals. I think the problem is the San Francisco Bay Area, and by that I would say the Silicon Valley plus the city, despite its challenges, still has a, an array of talent and particularly not just technical talent, kind of serially entrepreneurial talent. And venture capitalists who grew up as entrepreneurs and know how to deploy capital and skill and talent that no place can match. And if you look, you know, people have been saying the death of San Francisco, the death of San Francisco, the death of San Francisco. 
San Francisco's share of venture capital investment in high technology is up again. It's over 40% again. And, you know, it, within AI, it's the center of the universe. But here's, here's the rub. I'm just completing a report now on the geography of venture capital finance innovation in the United States. should be out in the fall. Across the United States, now, now look, Austin has massively increased its level of venture capital. So has Miami. So has Nashville. So has Ann Arbor. So has, we can go down Boulder. But if you look at who's increased their share of venture capital investment in high technology startups over the past decade, three metros, three. There is no other metro that has increased its share by more than one percentage point. The three are in this order, New York City, which has seen its share grow by about 7%, uh, San Francisco, which has seen its share grow by about 5%, the Bay Area, and LA, which has seen its share grow by 3 or 4%. That's it. So, so the geography of innovation hasn't, it's spread out. There's more places that have a lot. And don't get me wrong, Austin has more venture capital going into startups today than Silicon Valley had in 1995. So does Seattle. So does about 10 places across the So does New York. So does LA. So yeah, Austin is a real serious technology hub. But in terms of the most serious technology hubs, it's San Francisco Bay Area, New York, Los Angeles, and then probably Boston and Seattle. And then you begin to see, you know, Austin and some others. I would agree when you think about superstar, it would be the group that you put. And then I, I think that Austin is starting to, from my perspective, pull away from the other group and be this kind of in between, right? 100%. Austin is more like Seattle now and actually not that far behind Boston. I think I think the the big two are San Francisco and New York, and I think the thing you know Paul Graham is so smart on all of this stuff. You know he wrote so many years ago, if there was going to be a challenger to Silicon Valley, it wouldn't be a suburban place; it would be a real city. And and he he's right that that what happened in New York, it's a real city with a lot of end users that's attractive to a lots of kinds of people that is a talent magnet. But I think you're right that Austin defines this second tier. And probably it's gotten closer to Boston. It's probably more, and, and certainly Seattle fits into that group. Maybe to a lesser extent, I'm talking to you from Toronto. Toronto now in AI, is it getting there? I think you'd put Berlin and Stockholm and Amsterdam and Ian Hathaway and I, folks, I can, we can send you the link to this report. We actually looked at this in some details some years ago. No, I think you are right about that. And I think the point that I try to make in this report is that you don't have to be Silicon Valley or the Bay Area. Well, Austin, Austin should be something new. I think I, yeah, I, I, I push on this a lot. I hate, hate, and people have heard this before. I hate Silicon Alley, Silicon Hills, Silicon Me Sand. Me too. Like Stupid. stop trying to be, because just like, just like the Bay Area wasn't. Don't be the next Silicon yes. somewhere. And here's a couple things to riff on that with you. Because, you know, we follow each other on Twitter and we kind of, I feel like we know each other. I think that Austin... I'd put Nashville in this. Well, I want to say, let me say one thing first and then go back to, let me hold that thought. I was writing this report that I just finished for the state of Michigan for Governor Whitmer, the Detroit chamber. And one of the really smart people in Michigan said to me, Richard, you should look at the growth trajectory of Austin versus Ann Arbor uh, since 1970. And I did that. And it's a holy shit moment. I mean, Ann Arbor flatlines, it goes from 230,000 people to 400 and some thousand people, something like that. Austin goes from 400,000 people to two and a half million people. Right. And the point is that Austin is a college town 
on steroids that understood how to grow and scale itself. But but in this mix is something else where I think Austin and Ann Arbor and Nashville, when we look in this report at the great heartland of the country, the interior of the country, and it goes back to your point uh, about what you can do. To, I say in this, the heartland should not try to be another nameless silicon somewhere. It should be unique. And what's interesting about the heartland, it's the place that we make things. The coasts are the place that we invent things. The freaking heartland is the place we make things. I just looked at this data yesterday. The heartland is still home to over 50% of U.S. manufacturing employment, while it's nearly, it's about double its population and economic output. Well, look at what's happened in Austin. What did you get? Whether I like Elon Musk or not, whether I think the guy's lost his marbles is not important, you have a massive automotive facility. What's happening in Nashville? Ford and, and some of the Japanese are building EV facilities. What's happening in Michigan? We are going through this Schumpeterian moment in America of creative destruction. You know, and I just want to say this. What was cool 20 years ago was to invent new widgets like this thing, you know, all cool technologies out in these coasts. Now I think what's cool is to apply them to real, like the car has become cool again. Old industries have become interesting again. Batteries have become fascinating again. I think what's interesting about the heartland and what's so interesting to American renewal is now for the first time in my life, we can see all of these cool technologies in Austin and Nashville and Ann Arbor and Detroit, and I could go on, being applied to real industries. I think that's just fascinating. A conversation I was having, uh, not, not on air, but we can make amazing things. We could make the most amazing medicines. And one of the things that the pandemic showed us is you can make amazing medicines. And if you can't manufacture them or you can't ship them, it doesn't matter. And so the unsexy became sexy. That's why uh, companies like Resilience, which is a biomanufacturing company, came into being. That's why clinical trial companies. That's why we're seeing a lot more. You just said hard company. Uh, I want to get something for you. I want to get. I want to show you something. So, folks, before I wrote Rise of the Creative Class, I wrote this: 1993, the breakthrough illusion, and this: beyond mass production, the transformation of the American Midwest. What we argued in 1993 was that America had developed an unbalanced system of innovation in Silicon Valley that focused on new, tweaky breakthroughs and neglected the manufacturing follow through, which was being done in Japan and Germany. And it looked like, look, it looked like I was wrong for 20 years. It looked like the American system of high flying, high technology innovation was the envy of the world until it wasn't. <laughs> until I, it was before the pandemic, but the pandemic showed us if we can't make things, and we depend, and, and of course, geopolitical, Russia, China. If we can't make things, and if we just make these breakthroughs, and we give the follow-through away, this is Richard in 1993 talking, we're not going to be a competitive country. We're not going to, and what happened, of course, we created this enormous wealth on the coast. I would say it's oligarchic wealth. It just this upper tier of the income distribution or the, or the wealth distribution is made off with all the spoils. The heartland of our country aside from Austin and maybe Columbus, Ohio, and a few other places, fell to pieces, you know, with deindustrialization and abandonment. And now we go 30 years later, we have the opportunity now to rebuild our country. And I think this is the coolest thing of my life. Like, I'm so glad I've witnessed all of this, man. Like, but I think now what you said, it's now interesting for people to say, 
you know, San Francisco's fine and Boston's fine and New York's fine, but maybe I could go to Austin or Nashville or Dallas. I could go, we name a thousand communities, right? Or Indianapolis or Columbus, Intel building that giant chip factory complex. You know, to my mind, folks, I always say Columbus is just like Austin. They're like sister cities to me, like state capitals with great universities that are talent magnets for their regions. Look, I just think the few, and then, you know, my argument is, sorry to run on and be, you know, be so ditzy about this. My argument about this is that we have a huge asset in this country that's underperforming. We probably have 50 Austin. You know, after we're done, I'm going to go make, enumerate this. We have 50 potential Austins in this country. We have Ann Arbor and Madison and Bloomington, Indiana and West Lafayette, Indiana, where Purdue, I could go down the list, right? All of these college towns which have the potential to be Austin's, right? Which have these research universities and developing this science. And, and all of these places are close to the manufacturing muscle. So Lord God, I think this is the future of our country. So we got to come up with a good, you know, the Austin version of the word Silicon Valley. So it becomes the, you know, the Austin version, right? So everyone kind of copies us. So they're, they're, they're second there. It is interesting because the, what I've started to use, and, and models are good, right? I, I don't mind models. I don't mind It's when you try to be the second... I actually think that the the template that Austin can can show is Silicon Valley meets Detroit in the 50s, which we can create innovation plus building things. Because if you look at, as you said, we're we're building EVs, we have semiconductors, we're building rockets, we have Firefly here, but we also have AI companies, quantum companies, life science companies, and we're building novel innovations. It's not just, you said, it's not somebody else is doing the creation and we're just building. But then what I really like about the fact that, and it was really, there was an economist article. The, the article stated that it was like, we're all wanting to bring back these manufacturing jobs, but they're not what they used to be. They're all automated. They're not good paying. And I was like, okay, I can only speak anecdotally. I don't have data, but what I'm seeing here and, you know, the Gigafactory, the, this Tesla's factory, hiring, you know, 50 people, I just, just quoting articles, 50 people straight out of high school with, you know, 40, $50,000 a year jobs, the Samsung plant, like these are all really good manufacturing jobs. Another company here, I don't want to say, because I don't know if they're hiring yet, but I know these are high tech jobs. And I asked them who it is that they're going to be hiring, right? This is, uh, and as they said, oh, we go after the people who are working at the Amazon UPS, you know, fulfillment plants, we pay a lot better and there's a lot more interesting and cool high-tech jobs. And so Amazon and UPS hate us and they tend to build, you know, more of these. And like, you're going to have these really amazing high-tech middle-class jobs. So you're actually going to have a really great, as you said, it's prosperity at every level. Yeah, and I, I think there's no doubt that the heartland is the place that makes things. And that heartland goes from Michigan to Illinois to Indiana, down through Kentucky and Tennessee and straight on to Texas and Oklahoma. That's the part of and and the industrial base of the country has actually shifted southward, right? It used to be anchored in the Great Lakes states, but for a whole variety of reasons that we don't have time to get into here today. It's still anchored there, but it shifted southward into Tennessee and Kentucky and Alabama. And Texas, and you look at, and you look at the list because I did this of major investments in EV facilities. You see, Michigan still tops the list with Tennessee, but Alabama and Texas and those other states are all in the top ten or twenty. 
So yeah, we have a new manufacturing complex emerging, a new industrial complex emerging in America on which the future of our nation depends. It's going to create some good jobs. It's not going to be a salve for that. Now, remember, only about 6% of Americans now today work in production occupations, but it's going to create more, more of those. It'll elevate wages. So the distribution facilities will be forced to keep up with those. So they're going to have to pay people more. And the fact of the matter is we face a labor shortage, right? We face a shortage. So we're going to have to develop and tap into communities of disadvantage, tap into underserved markets, develop more skills and talent. And then I think what's so interesting about Austin, if you, it, it, it's very interesting. This is playing out in real time, folks, in our conversation. If you think about three pillars of this new kind of economy that, that could emerge in the heartland, one is the reinvigoration with technology of manufacturing. Two is the application, as you said, of all those new technologies, AI, robotics, electrification, battery, I could, we could go on, right, to that. But the third one is lifestyle. And, you know, there is a new lifestyle. This isn't my father's, I talk about this in Rise of the Creative Class. My father worked in a factory. When he came home from work, he wanted to crack open with a can open or a can of Schaefer beer and put on his favorite baseball team, the Yankees, right? He didn't want to go out on a, a bicycle or, you know, my mom, I make the joke, could I imagine my mom dressed up in Lycra on rollerblades? It, it's like, it boggles, the, I can't even imagine it, right? It's so bizarre. But Austin, along with Boulder and other places, have invented this new lifestyle around popular music, around enjoying live music, around lifestyle, around health. And maybe some of those new jobs that were, I'm not to say like the jobs like a plumber and a carpenter, which are still great jobs, you know, that's personal coach or cycling instructor. Like those are high growth, high pay jobs. So I think it's a complex of jobs. And what I think the manufacturing, the technology infused manufacturing muscle does is create these great spillover effects, right? Which enable wealth to, to grow and spill over. So you support all of these ancillary and related industries, including many devoted to lifestyle, because I think the great new industry in America, of course, in addition to manufacturing is lifestyle, right? We have more time. We invest more in ourselves. We want to extend our life. We want to be healthier. And yeah, so I think I think what's so interesting about Austin, and I think Nashville is like this. I think Austin and Nashville are very similar in these ways, is that they both have the whole package, right? They both have technology. They both have music. They both have lifestyle. They both have manufacturing. I think that's why the, the Austin and Nashville are so interesting. Oh, I think Austin and Nashville in 2020 were the the two next places. And it shows you the power of narrative because I think Nashville was essentially bumped from that list with the power of a single tweet. Like, you know, Mayor Suarez's tweet of when they said, uh, let's move Silicon Valley to Miami and how can I help? Narratives are powerful. Like that changed the prospects of a city for a number of years you know, for now, and obviously they're having some issues now and they get into crypto at the top of the bubble. Like there's, you know, narratives can only take so far with the foundation, but narratives matter. And I think the narrative of Nashville, the narrative of Austin, we're, we're, we're going. Let me just talk about what I think are some of the challenges ahead of these three places, Austin, Nashville, and Miami, to which I would put Miami at the top of the list because I spend... I have a place in Miami Beach. I'm a snowbird. And I spent some time in Miami, so I know it well. Miami is more hyped than the others. If you look at just human capital or the creative class or highly educated people, Miami is not in the same category. And Nashville is actually has, has added the largest growth in human capital measured either as growth in the creative class or highly educated individuals is Nashville. Nashville is Vanderbilt University. 
Austin has the University of Texas at Austin. Miami has the University of Miami and FIU. They're great, but they're not that. They're not, they're not these research powerhouses. Miami has always been a boom-bust economy, unlike Nashville and Austin, and it's always been a hype-driven economy. And Mayor Suarez is really good at this. I know Francis. I've interviewed him. I was on my podcast. I think the problems of the three, they, the three share a similar dilemma. You know, our great friend Steve Case, who I admire and love because he cares so much about the rise of these places, the rise of the rest, he calls it the rest of our country. I believe that one of the great shocks of the pandemic has been the rise of the rents. And if you look at the places that rents have risen the fastest, Austin, Nashville, and Miami at a, at a steroidal level, Miami is now the most unaffordable the metropolitan area in the country, outpacing New York, Los Angeles, and San Francisco, not because housing prices are that high, because incomes are low. So the point I make is that I wrote a book called The New Urban Crisis. I said the crisis of the 21st century is not the crisis of dysfunction and deindustrialization and failure, like my hometown of Newark, New Jersey, or Detroit or Cleveland in the 70s or 80s. It's a crisis of the success of these places. And I think Austin, Nashville, and Miami have been challenged by this in a way that not even I would have predicted. Like the escalation in housing prices. Now, now Austin has come down a bit. It's still, look, it's a 10% decline. It was what, a 60% run up or something? So I feel that as someone who, as, as someone who bought a house at the, uh, at the peak. Yeah, I, I think the challenge for these places is how are they affordable for regular people? And, you know, one of the things I believe is that the, the, the affordability issues of the Nationals, the Austins and Miamis will help fuel the rise of other cities. Like, you know, t- one of the places that's really grabbing talent from Austin is Tulsa, Oklahoma. Uh, you know, some of the fastest growing places in terms of housing prices in the United States are in the Midwest, up in the Great Lakes region. So I don't think this is a terrible thing for the country, but I do think it's something Austin has to grapple with, that that Austin is now in the midst of what I would call a new urban crisis of its own success. Okay, so but but I want to I pull on that a little bit, because I, I hear that a lot. I can't speak to Nashville and in Miami specifically on this, but I do, I hear that the affordability issue a lot and the rents and so forth. And the data in the, in the pieces that I've seen are clearly true in the city of Austin. It seems to be, though, less true in the metro of Austin. Because I hear so often that people are leaving the city, they're leaving Austin. And my next question is, okay, so where are they going? Oh, well, they're going to Lockhart. Oh, I mean, they're, they're staying in the metro. They're going to Georgetown. Like Georgetown, you know, is one of the fastest growing cities, in the, you know, in the country. And we talk about the fact that we're building, like we have, you know, Firefly, which is a, you know, a, a, they're building rockets. That's not in Austin. It's actually in Cedar Park because you can't, there's no room to build rockets in the city of Austin. And so Austin is turning into a multi-hub metro and so we have that because you have the physical space for manufacturing. You have different centers of excellence. I think that's causing some issues with commercial real estate. We also have remote work. We have all of this. So how do we think about all of that? Right. So, yeah, let me let me let me respond, because fortunately, with the magic of the Internet, the incredible magic of the Internet, the statistics you want can be called up immediately. And. You know, the person who identified what we're talking about is a former Austinite who I believe decamped maybe to Marfa or a Marfa-like place, uh, Bill Bishop, who wrote this book called The Big Sort and argued that Americans were sorting themselves in the late 20th and now in the early 21st century 
along lines of skill, human capital, talent, political and cultural inclination. So Austin has benefited from the big sort and is wrapped up in the big sort. So I've just pulled up the LinkedIn data for Austin for July of 2023. Austin is attracting people from the following. San Francisco, Los Angeles, New York, Chicago, Boston, Seattle, D.C., to a lesser extent, Houston, San Diego, and Detroit. Here's where Austin is losing people to. Denver at a very high rate. San Antonio nearby. Colorado Springs. So to Colorado. Asheville, North Carolina. Sarasota, Florida. Charlotte, Knoxville, Tennessee. Portland, Maine. Tampa Bay. And last but not least, nearby Tulsa, Oklahoma. So, yes, I think your point is right, that that housing is less expensive in outlying areas. But for the metro as a whole, the Austin metro, which used to be incredibly affordable as as, as much as five years ago, it's now more expensive. It it is not in San Francisco's league. No denying that. But it's in a different league than it was. And it's certainly, by no means, I think Austin has done a far better job of managing its growth than Miami or building new not managing its growth, but building new stock and supply. You know, housing economists have shown this. So it's far more affordable than Miami, but it's less affordable than it was. 100% agree with that. And I think it's the narrative a little bit when I hear people are leaving and I want to always ask that next question of, are they leaving to Tulsa? Are they leaving to Silicon Valley? Or are they leaving to Georgetown? Then that answers some of the question. Yeah, all of the above. And I think the last thing I, I want to talk about since you said we try to be politically neutral as politics. And let me tell you what I think is an issue. You may disagree with this, but one of the things I identified when I wrote Rise of the Creative Class is that many of these techies tend to be fiscally conservative, but socially liberal. And this is why I created this simple equation called the three T's, in which Austin excelled. I said, you have to excel at all three T's. Technology, you have to invest in technology, universities, great companies, talent, you have to invest in talent, you have to retain it. But you have to, uh, tolerance. You have to be a place that, that really people of both genders, all sexual orientations, different races and ethnicities felt comfortable, a kind of meritocracy. That's what I heard from young people at Carnegie Mellon or MIT or Stanford. They wanted to go to a place where they would be valued for who they are, not their skin color or gender or sexual orientation. And a place that had that kind of open-minded outlook was a place that had meritocratic values. And, you know, when I wrote this book, it's so funny, you know, I did a lot of interviews in Austin and and it's all in there, folks. Uh, You know, people would say, you know, we, we don't fly kids through Houston or Dallas. We fly kids through Chicago. We want them to see Austin and its airport being different. I mean, I'm just talking to Austin high technology people at the time and recruiters. I think what happened in Miami and Texas in terms of narrative, and I I just want to say this is fact, is that there were outspoken politicians, some like Francis Suarez, who were much less politically, ideologically doing this, but others like the governors of these two states that went on sort of a crusade. And, you know, let's say I'm a techie and I'm somewhat moderate. I may lean a little bit left of center. I hear it in Miami. I don't think I can live here anymore. I don't like the governor. He's attacking gay rights. He's attacking women's rights. He's attacking the damn mouse. I hear it less in Texas because I don't live there, but the same kind of thing, people going, I don't know if it's the right place for me anymore. And and then the secondary point I would make about this is that states that tend to be have red governors or red legislatures, this is a, a statistical fact, great book on this by a professor at Stanford called Why Cities Lose. 
and his argument is that cities tend to be left, Boston, Dallas, Houston, even Miami up until recently, states tend to be red. And then when you get a state that's super conservative, it doesn't invest in its cities and its cities have a harder time making a go of it, whether that's right or wrong. The point is, I do think there's a political complication. And I wish Austin and Miami could go back to being normal, not normal, but like purple, like that politics wouldn't enter the fray, wouldn't enter into these narratives. It wouldn't be about, we're going to be the alternative to the woke places of New York and San Francisco. Because I think, although that does attract some people, it also causes others to leave. And I think successful tech hubs are, you know, my, my friend, um, Dan Deermeyer, who's the new chancellor, chancellor at Vanderbilt, I think you'll like this. He calls it principled neutrality. I like this idea. And I think Austin and Miami and Nashville should be principled neutrality. And I think sometimes the postures of state leaders affect that to a degree. Sorry to run on to my political rant. I know we're kind of getting close to, to time here. One of the questions that I do wanted to definitely wanted to pull on, and this has been fantastic and Richard, we're definitely going to do a round two. One of the parts of the creative class that you had mentioned, and I always, and this has been something that's fascinated me ever since I kind of first started hearing about your work a long time ago, the almost tra traditional piece that we think about creatives, right? And I think that has expanded recently to digital storytellers, podcasters, YouTubers, et cetera, right? And I've kind of always thought about like, one, how do you see them connecting in either directly or indirectly into the actual innovation ecosystem. How do you think that should work? So for, first of all, I think what was interesting to me to start was the simple fact that places that had significant arts communities in the 60s also ended up having great technology-based innovation ecosystems in the 2000s. And you know, the first thing we did was I met a fellow named Gary Gates at Carnegie Mellon, he was studying the location of the gay community. And he said, look, Richard, what are your five best tech hubs? I said, San Francisco, San Jose, Austin, Seattle, and Boston. He said, well, you've named five of the gayest cities in America. The next thing I did, once, once I kind of got over like the shock of that and said, no, we should look at that. Then, you know, we had these data, which I told you about, that come from the census data and the Bureau of Labor Statistics. I said, could we identify clusters of artists and musicians we, now we're going to have fun, right? Now we're causing a shitstorm. Let's call that the Bohemian Index. That, this ends up getting me on the Colbert Report, right? Why cities with gays and rock bands, you know, are, are ruling the innovative economy. And, and there were statistical correlations. And yeah, there's lots of issues and lots of noise. And there was a whole debate about that. But the point was, my argument was that places that were open to artists or gay people or different people back in the 60s and 70s were also the places that were open to these crazy entrepreneurs who back in the 60s and 70s, many of them had long hair, were hippies, you know, ripped blue jeans, drove Volkswagen vans, and would not have gotten support in the constipated environment of New York or Chicago. But now, what's so interesting to me, so one of my big research projects now is on the creator economy. We're doing massive study right now. It's in the field of creators, these digitally online artists, musicians, people, creators of all sorts, lifestyle, 25% of social activists. They're not making art or music. They're doing political and social campaigns about climate change and all this stuff, women's rights and equality, gay rights, and trying to really understand this. But I think my point is twofold. One, the creator economy is a clear indication of innovative ecosystems and connected to it. But two, 
if you have a music or arts industry, if you're Austin or Nashville and you have a bunch of singer-songwriters strumming guitars, you better start investing in your creative economy. That the future of the arts and music is a large part online. And I'll say one other thing. I have a six and seven-year-old. They're little creators. You know, I, I guess if I'd never started this project, I wouldn't have known what they were. But, you know, they run around, they grab, they don't have an iPhone of their own. They grab my iPhone and they tell stories and they don't watch television. They watch YouTube creators. And if I ask them what they want to be, they say, we want to sing and dance and perform and tell stories and use video. So the point I'm trying to make is if you're running a business school or you're running a university or you want to equip people for the 21st century, it's not just reading, writing and arithmetic. My mom's three R's. Kids better know how to present themselves videographically. They better understand the skills you've developed in podcasting. Like, don't get me wrong. I'm a great writer, but that skill, it's still useful. I, I want my kids to be good writers, but it's not as useful as it was when I was a kid. This, the Using these, these new technological means of promoting arts and culture are really critical. And I think you are right. I think that what they allow is innovation and creativity to become more distributed but, you know, then people migrate to different hubs and they come in and out. So I think it's just much more networked. There's still going to be hubs and, and, and spokes. But, yeah, I think this rise of the creator economy is a much bigger thing. And one thing that worries me is that when I talk to politicians about this or mayors about this or economic developers about this or university leaders, their eyes glaze over like I'm, like I'm from the freaking moon. Like, what the fuck are you talking about? I think you're right. That this thing is bigger than, and, and it's the future. That this blending of the physical world and the digital world uh, around arts and culture and innovation is much bigger than anyone thought of. Yeah, no, I think we should connect them. And to your point, my two older children this week, their summer camp was stop motion. So, Dude, you made the smartest, you did the smartest thing for your kids. Oh, it wasn't, it wasn't my choice. They were demanding it. Look, it stokes their, their ability to create to stoke their passion, to create an audience, to create an identity. And of course, there's so, so many dangers of this stuff too. I don't want to, but yeah, let's, let's, when that report comes out, which is probably in about six months, because the survey, it's a global survey. We're in every, not every country, we're in every region of the world, in many countries of the world. We're not in every country of Africa, we're not in every country of Asia, but we're in many. So yeah, when that report comes out, we're going to have the first baseline data on the, on the extent of this. So yeah, let's do another conversation. No, that sounds great. So, Richard, we always uh, end with the same question. What's next, Austin? I think Austin is part of this remaking of America around innovation and lifestyle, but with real application to remaking our industrial base. Maybe I'd thought more about that in the context of Michigan before or, you know, Detroit and Ann Arbor. But talking to you, it is clear to me that Austin is going to sound so weird, even though Austin... You know what the next Austin is? Austin is the connective fiber between coastal innovation hubs and the new way of making things in the heartland. It, that's what it is. Because I was thinking, I was going to say it's more connected to Detroit. than No, it's equally connected to San Francisco and Detroit. It is really the pivot point, if you will, the pivot point of the remaking of the U.S. economy by applying technology and innovation and creativity to the way we make things. That's so important to our economic future and to the future of our people, our middle class, and our standard of living. So you know what? My old buddy's now mayor of Austin, Kirk Watson. My One of my protégés, Stephen Pedigo, runs the Urban Lab at the University of Texas at Austin. I had Steve Tomlinson and Eugene Sepp Veda in my class. Maybe I need to come to Austin for a visit again. 
It sounds like a great idea. Thanks, brother. Richard Florida, thanks for joining the Austin X Podcast. Oh, thanks for having me. This was great. Thanks for doing what you do. So what's next, Austin? We're glad you've joined us on this journey. Please subscribe at your favorite podcast catcher. Leave us a review and let your colleagues know about us. This will help us grow the podcast and continue bringing you unique interviews and insights. Thanks again for listening and see you soon.